It's always good to be here. And um, if you notice me limping, it's because I was ice skating with my daughter yesterday and um, landed, uh, I'd like to think, in a dignified kind of way. But I know I, my legs went out from under me, and I slammed um, on my rear. And so I'm having problems walking today. <laughs> but it's good to be here. And um, thanks for the opportunity. Uh, uh, to help us think about one way to share the good news. So let me pray for us, and then let's dig in together. Um, Father, uh, for those of us who claim to be your followers, we've been captivated by the beauty of this good news, um, that Jesus Christ has come to save sinners and then to um, release us to engage your world. And so um, would Jesus, um, by the end of this conversation, be greater in our minds, um, may our hope be firmer and our confidence deeper. And uh, to you be the honor and glory forever. Amen. Um, it's funny, uh, Dick and I evidently are sharing a little bit of mind, because that's ex- what he said about the singing today, that's exactly what I was thinking, right? If, if you're old enough, um, as you sang Pass It On, right, those of us who were in that era just thought, this is so Jesus movement people kind of, right? Guitar, some candlelight, maybe around a fire. Some of us were thinking, I had longer hair. I had hair back then. Um, and then when we sang, um, right, uh, his name is wonderful, right? There's something about the weird chromatic structure of that that immediately, for those of us of that age, like, yes, late 60s, early 70s, there was something about all the... And what's true is that every era of the church always attempts to contextualize its worship and its witness in a way that is understandable um, to, that, uh, to that era, right? So if you lived um, in the medieval era, um, your worship was Gregorian chant, and that fit the way that you sang. And by, you, know, you get into the 60s and you have kind of the hippie, chromatic kind of things. People are figuring out how to play their guitars in larger groups. Um, Days of Elijah, very 80s, early 90s, right? There's something about that bouncy, kind of uh, energetic sort of hymn. And, uh, and so it goes, you can pick up just by the tone. My, my daughter and I were just talking about music, um, how she's learning to play the piano. She's like, I can tell when it's Mozart, because there's this kind of dun-dun-dun-dun-dun in the background all the time. I said, that's exactly right. The same is true with gospel presentations. And so... Um, I'd like to share with you a a gospel presentation that we've been teaching students recently in university. So this is um, our version now. It's a little different from the bridge diagram, which many of us are familiar with, which is, I think, was developed by the navigators maybe in the 70s, 60s. Um, And so um, this a gospel presentation does some unique things that we like because it, it, it fits what we think students are doing now. I hope it'll be useful for you. And so if you could, um, does the PowerPoint work? Because I just totally threw a PowerPoint during the last song. Um, we call it the big story. And it's called the big story because it's designed to actually help people find their place in God's story. What we have discovered over the last couple of years is um, that what's unique about well, sort of unique about postmodern times or current times, is that people feel adrift. Um, They're not connected to a bigger story any longer. They're isolated. They're alone. Um, They don't know what their place is. And so, excellent. Thank you. So we're calling it the big story because what we want people to do is not just um, 
find salvation as kind of isolated, alone people, but to find their place in the story that God is telling about the world. So the big story actually takes you through all of the Bible in uh, four short pictures. And so let me describe to you the big story, um, explain a little bit about how we use it, and for those of you who are thinking, I'm never going to remember this, don't worry, I have big story booklets for all of you, or at least the first hundred of you. So all the anxiety of like, I need to remember this can drop, and if you in discussion groups want to talk about it, you can go, well, we have the booklet, it doesn't matter whether Greg is here. So, but I'm not handing it out now, because I'd rather have you look at me than the booklet, right? So a little pedagogy. So if you go to the next slide, um, what we want us, how we start the big story is that God designed the world for good. That um, the God created humanity to live in harmony with him, to be in deep relationship with who God is, to be in relationship and harmony with each other, right? And you see that beautifully in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2 when Adam and Eve come together and Adam goes, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, right? Um, crude romantic poetry, but nevertheless, he's like, you, unlike everybody else, and they come together, and even though they're different, they live in harmony, right? And it's both of them together manifesting the image of God. And so people live in harmony with one another, they live in harmony with God, and they live in harmony with the environment around them. That the image of the first people that God created was, I brought you into this garden. It's a garden overflowing with fruit in its diversity, vegetation in its beauty, animals in all of their creative diversity, living um, in a perfect state. That's what God intended for us. That's what God intended for the world. That's what God intended for us to be in relationship with him. And so God creates us. So part of what we believe is all of our longings and hopes about what the world should be like, what our relationship should be like, what our relationship with God should be like, echo back to that initial thing of what did God intend for the world. The problem, of course, is the world isn't actually like that. So the next slide, uh, we call it damaged by evil. And the reality is that, um, human beings, humanity, right, have rejected God's leadership. We've taken charge of our own lives um, and essentially tried to become our own gods. And that's really what happens um, in chapter 3 of Genesis, right, when uh, Eve is tempted and Adam is tempted by the serpent in front of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't think it was a magic fruit. It wasn't like, if you touch this magic fruit, its magic will transform you into God-likeness. What God said is, that don't touch this tree, because it's the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Um, what Adam and Eve were deciding when they took the fruit is, will I choose what I define good and evil to be, or will I trust God to define it for me? Right? Will I choose for myself the right to define good and evil for myself? Or will I allow God to define it? And as soon as Adam and Eve, right, as Eve grabs a fruit and as Adam goes, yeah, I'll take some too, um, they're saying, in effect, I'm going to choose for myself what's good. And I'm going to choose for myself what is evil. God said it was evil to touch this tree. I'm going to say it's good because it's pleasing to the eye. It looked like it might be tasty. It might give me something I want. This is good. And that's fundamentally, right, what we believe sin is, is putting our own judgment above God's judgment. Choosing for ourselves what will be evil as opposed to what God, is, um, what God is said to be evil. So the natural consequences we see all the time, right, in our relationship with one another, when I choose for myself what is good rather than what God defines as good for our relationships, our relationships begin to break down. 
And it doesn't take a lot in our world to see that the relationship between people has tragically broken down. We see it in our families. Um, with broken families, we see it um, in our community, right? It, if you've been following the news, um, what happened in McKinney, Texas, just a week ago, and right, a perpetuation of um, continued systemic racism in our country manifesting um, uh, in disorder. You see it in war, right? You see it in the way that we exploit one another. You see the way that when people choose to live by their own rules, we damage one another. We see it in the environment, don't we? Right? Rather than stewarding the environment, rather than caring for this world God gave us, our primary posture toward it is how much can I exploit from it? Right? How much stuff can I extract from the ground before it irretrievably damages the water that I drink? How much can I throw into the air before it becomes difficult for us to breathe? How much can I pour into the ocean? Right? I mean, we see it all the time. And of course, the reality is sin damages our relationship with God because God is holy. And he judges our sin. And in effect, what we've told God by sinning is, I really don't want you. I'm content by myself. So damage by evil points out the environment has broken, the relationship between people has broken, and our relationship with God has been broken. Um, and we all contribute to it. We're all a part of it. So the next slide is, um, we've been restored for better. Um, because God so loves the world. He loves the people in this world and he loves this world that he created because like any creator, right, like any artist, he loves the people who are made in his image and he loves the world that he designed uh, by his power. He chooses to enter the world in the person of Jesus to begin the restoration of the world. And by doing this, God gives us a better way to live, um, a way which... Um, all the good things he intended to happen actually could happen. So Jesus did three things. We talked about he identified, um, he owned, and he overcame. He identified with us, becoming a human being, uh, identifying with us by living in a damaged world, although, although he never contributes to the damage. And for a lot of us, this is really good news. Um, I remember um, one of my aunts, I think I may have told this story here before, um, she, she's the wild aunt, right? There's the respectable aunties in my families, and then there's her, right? She's the auntie when you're at the family gathering, everyone will be polite, and she's going to say what's on her mind. Never meanly, but very truthfully, <laughs> and often uncomfortably. She's also the funny one, right? So she's the one that you really want at the party, even though she makes everybody nervous. <laughs> and so one day I was uh, visiting her, when she lived here in New York City and I was still living in the Midwest and we were eating lunch because that's what you do with your aunties. Um, if you're Chinese, we were in Chinatown and she turned to me and she said, and she knew I worked for Nervar, she said, Greg, do you want to know I'm a Christian? And I said, yeah, because I, I didn't know she was one. So um, <laughs> she said, so um, when she was living in Vancouver, she said, um, you know, I, I was at home a lot those years. I I'd, I'd, wasn't working and um, all of my... Um, Hindu friends started inviting me to religious meetings. And I didn't want to go, because really, who wants to go to a religious meeting if you're not religious? I mean, rah, 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 right? So she's like, I don't want to go. But then they said, oh, we always serve lunch. And she said, I love dal. I love roti. You know, I mean, she's just like, chana. She's like, I'm in. So she went because um, she, was, she wanted to eat, and she learned a lot about Hinduism. And then, well, as soon as people saw that she was in play, the Buddhist friends started coming to her and said, you'll come to our meeting. We'd love to tell you about Buddhism. And then 
she looked it didn't look very interesting. She said, and we serve lunch. And she's like, vegetarian food, vegetarian Buddhist food is very good. You have tofus, you have sitans, you have a lot of fresh vegetables. It's very good for you. Um, and you know, obviously, she's the auntie who, if you feed her, she will come. <laughs> so she learned a lot about Buddhism. Well, you know, the Christians, of course, didn't want to left, be left out. So they invited her to um, a local church, invited her to what they call the Alpha Course. And you may be familiar with it. It's an evangelistic program very similar to what you all have been doing here at the cafe, right, where um, you'll uh, eat a meal together. You'll watch a video teaching on the basics of the Christian faith. faith. You're in discussion groups. And at kind of the end of a seven-week course, you go on a retreat together. Um, to experience community, and it's that same small group leaders who lead you through this process, and it's been effective all around the world. And she said, oh, I'd be interested. Do you serve food? And they said, well, yeah, we have sandwiches, because, you know, it was Christians. And <laughs> she said, well, hmm, I don't really like sandwiches, but okay, I'll come. And she said, you know, after looking at these three world religions being taught by them, do you want to know I'm a Christian? And I said, yeah, I'd be fascinated. And she said, Christianity's the only religion where God had the balls enough to show up in my world, right? He suffered the life I suffered. He experiences the same temptations I suffered. He experiences the same pains and losses that I suffered. He knew what it was like to watch a friend die. He probably buried his own father, right? He was betrayed by his friends. He was oppressed by his government. He had the guts to experience the world I live in and show me a better way. I'm a follower of Jesus because he had that kind of courage. Jesus identifies with us. Right? Jesus doesn't just identify with us. He actually um, owns and takes upon himself the judgment that we're due. Part of um, the, the great struggle for Christians theologically, if God is holy right, and has to judge sin so that he can be just, because you don't want a God who ignores injustice. Right? A God who would end up saying to injustice, it doesn't matter. Right? You, you, you lied a couple times. You killed half a million people in a genocide. Easy come, easy go. Come on in. Right? That's not a good God. That's actually a monster. And we all know that, right? There's a small thing we can let pass, but you know in your heart of hearts, if you thought God just didn't care whether evil occurred, he would be unworshipable. Unworshipable. He'd be a monster. And so how does God judge sin but still show mercy? And what we believe is because Jesus Christ, who's fully God and fully human, came into the world, Jesus Christ stands in our place. As a human being, he's the perfect representative for the human race. As God, he's capable of taking our sin upon himself and God's judgment in our place. And so in a beautiful act, what theologians talk about is that God substitutes himself in our place to satisfy himself um, in terms of executing judgment, as well as showing mercy. God does it all. He's perfectly just in judging our sin, and he's perfectly merciful by saying, I will take your place. And because Jesus is fully human and fully God, he's the absolute right representative for the human race. Right? Jesus Christ does that all. And then he overcomes sin. The beautiful thing is that death has no dominion over Jesus. God's judgment was not the final answer. It was the resurrection. Right? And so Jesus shows us what it means to actually overcome the powers of evil. The Roman government and the Jewish leaders may have tried to kill him, but he didn't stay dead. The power of Satan may have tried to tempt him, but he didn't fall. Right? The oppressive nature of the world may have tried to crush him, but he still brought life. Jesus overcame evil. So, and, and I'm explaining a little bit more than I would normally explain in a short conversation with somebody. I want to round out this picture. So then what's the point, right? If after we've been restored uh, for better, I think the next slide should be, um, we've been sent to heal. 
So if you accept what Jesus Christ has done for you, here's what happens. Um, your relationship with God has changed because Jesus has restored your relationship to God. Because of what Jesus accomplished on the cross, God looks at you and says, my son has already borne the penalty, you're free. Your representative has paid your debt. Um, be liberated. And so our relationship with God is restored. Because Jesus and the whole, is working in our lives through the Holy Spirit, we're beginning to manifest the fruit of the Spirit visibly. We're showing love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, and self-control. And when you demonstrate the fruits of the Spirit, your relationships with people around you begin to change as well, right? Where there's anger, you bring love. Where there's depression, you begin to bring joy. Where there's enmity, you begin to bring peace. Where um, a little bit of self-control would cease some of the problems you're experiencing, you know how to bite your tongue. Um, and so re human relations get restored. And um, because Jesus has the power to restore our damaged world, he invites us to follow him together into his world, to expose corruption and bring justice and demonstrate love. And so how do we do this? Um, how do we begin to follow Jesus? Well, one, we identify with him. Just as Jesus identified with us and became human, we identify with him by believing that his death and resurrection breaks the, sol uh, the cycle of corruption in the world and frees us from the power of sin. We begin to own like Jesus owned our sin, we begin to own our individual responsibility for the damaged world, and we receive forgiveness. And then finally, like Jesus overcame the powers of evil, we overcome the damage in our world by committing to follow Jesus into his mission in the world. Um, God gives us the power to follow Jesus by giving us his spirit and a community of people who not only live in a broken world, but are now being sent out into that broken world to be salt and light to preserve what is good and to shed light on where there is darkness, to actually bring healing where there's sickness, to bring forgiveness uh, where there's bitterness, right? To bring hope where there's despair. Um, one of the unique things about this gospel presentation that I like is this last slide. Um, so uh, I've met a lot of college students who've come to faith through the bridge diagram, which is an excellent diagram. And if you're not familiar with it, um, you know, picture this big chasm and you're on one side and God's on the other and there's this big gap between you two. And because of Jesus, you're able to cross over a bridge to get to God. The, my, my difficulty with the bridge diagram is it kind of ends with you being with God. Like the entire goal of that exercise was so that you're with God and you're kind of done now. You can just live happily with Jesus, ignoring what else you left behind. And one of the reasons we like <clears throat> this diagram is it says after you've come to a relationship with Jesus, you now have the privilege and the responsibility to go out and be emissaries of Jesus wherever you are. And what I think it does is it sets up a new Christian to realize the goal isn't just hanging out with God. The goal is to be his witness. The goal is to be a worshiper where there are no worshipers. The goal is to um, bring back the world to the way God intended it to be. So if you're a teacher and you're a follower of Jesus, then teach those children like they matter to God, right? Be part of the way that he's going to nurture and develop them. If you live in a broken society, so if you're a Christian in McKinney, Texas this week, I hope part of what every church is doing is both saying, how will we talk about it in the pulpit? Both the actual pressures that police feel as well as the actual experiences of oppression and discrimination that so many of the people in our neighborhood feel. And how will we as a church be different in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our schools because of it, right? 
What will both protests look like and proper care of the people who are risking themselves to protect us look like? And how will we as a church do both and stand in between in the place where Jesus would be, right? Um, it, 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 it sends us out. So one of the questions that people then have is this like, why can't I go from my broken world, um, which is uh, number two up here in the upper right-hand corner, and just go straight to um, going out into the world to do good things, right? Because there are, frankly, a lot of non-believers in Jesus do far better things than Christians do, right? There are a lot of people who care for the homeless far more effectively than Christians do. There are a lot of people who are far kinder uh, than Christians are ever going to be, by and large, right? There are a lot of... Um, sick people who are being cared for by non-Christians. Why not just go from the top right-hand corner to the bottom left-hand corner? And part of what we would say is, then <clears throat> that's that barrier is, in the end, um, we're still sinful people. In the end, I don't know about you, but I experience compassion fatigue. I just cannot care about one more story. In the end, I don't have the ability, as nice as I like to think of myself as, to live as selflessly as I need to to actually change the world around me. In the end, for all the good that people can do by trying to go from two to four, right, from the top right to the bottom left, in the end, we need to be transformed on the inside so that in my attempt to help you and care for you, I'm not just trying to make myself feel better by how noble I'm acting. In the end, I won't be concerned just about justice things in this season of my life, but it, I can sustain a concern for justice over decades because the changes we want to see will take decades to come to fruition, right? In the end, I will only be able to extend forgiveness, not just once, not just twice, not just three times, but 70 times, 70 times, when my heart has been so changed by the daily experience of forgiveness that I can give joyfully out of the forgiveness that I've received. In the end, you have to be changed. You can't just skip from two to four. In the end, we still need Jesus. Um, Trying to pay attention to my time because this isn't a sermon, so I don't have a sense of how long it's going. So one of the things that we'll do then, if, if that's the bigger picture, is you'll end up with something like this. And part of um, the way you use a tool like this is to ask, so which world do you live in? If these are four pictures of the world, which world do you live in? Right? So some people, I'm just going to project, would say, I live in world one. I actually think the world is really good. I think I'm a really good person. I'm really happy with how things are. Right? The proper response to world one, which is the upper left-hand corner, is, so have you read a newspaper recently? <laughs> what privileged bubble do you live in that everything is so sweet and nice? And, and one, what you always say is, I'm very happy for you. <laughs> I wish more people felt that way, but they don't, right? Um, for a lot of people, a lot of college students, but really anybody paying attention at all that they say is, I live in world two, the upper right-hand corner. I know things aren't right in my life. I know things aren't right with the people I'm around, and I know things aren't right in this world. And one of the th reasons I love how this outline works is that um, uh, you don't have to convince people there is sin in the world anymore. Right? One of the difficulties difficulties that those of us who are a little older you would find when you're talking, um, particularly in the like 70s, 80s, like, you know, if you, the bridge, do you feel distant from God? No, I don't. I feel like this with God. And you're like, but you're not a Christian. Like, right, you're, you're kind of stuck, or they're really happy. They don't believe God. What this outline allows you to do is, do you see the broken world around you? Um, what's your explanation for that? And what's your solution for that? 
What's your hope in that? Um, if you're overwhelmed by the evil in the world and evil in your own heart, then Jesus is calling you to follow him. Would you like to become a follower of Jesus? Um, if you're in world um, three where Jesus is at, right, you, you meet somebody, you're talking, you discover they're a Christian, that's excellent. Do you want to begin to participate in the mission that Jesus is a part of? Right? Do you want to get involved with what God is already and is continuing to do in the world? Which is particularly for campus ministry, but all of us, right? We meet cultural Christians, people who are, seem very satisfied with their life in Jesus, but actually, in terms of their engagement with the world, seem pretty inert. Um, right? That's the classically too heavenly minded to be any earthly good people. The invitation is there's still more for you to do. There's still another invitation God is making you. And if you find somebody in four, right, who's already engaged in the mission of God, who's doing really well, then the invitation is really, do you want to get involved in the community, what God is doing? How could we work together to accomplish this, right? So one of the ways that, um, and then one of the ways that we use a tool like this um, is to, one, train Christian students to understand what's the flow of biblical history it starts by God's good creation, Genesis 1. It continues through the reality of a broken world, which is what the Old Testament continues to assert over and over and over again in every one of its pages, right? It explains who Jesus is and what he's about, identifying with us, owning with us, and overcoming the world, which is the story of the Gospels, and you see the Gospels play this out over and over and over, right? Jesus identifying with sinful humanity, Jesus overcoming evil by bringing healing in the world, um, and then... Um, much of the epistles and the book of Acts and Revelation ultimately is God showing my church will triumph over a broken world. It will bring healing and hope and restoration and reconciliation. All of us are commissioned to be a part of this, right? So it captures kind of the whole of the biblical story, which is why we call it the big story. And you find your place in the story. Which world do you live in? And do you want to follow the story to its conclusion? The other thing I like about this, and with these last couple thoughts I'll close, is um, if you have this framework in your head, it allows you to enter into conversations in gracious ways, right? So um, if you're in a moment with, uh, where people are aware of the world's brokenness because their own life is shattered, because they've been reading the newspaper, right? You know they identify with world two, which is the upper right-hand corner. The world is broken. One of the ways you enter that conversation is you acknowledge, I agree the world is really broken. I, as a Christian, don't have to pretend it's a nicer-looking world than it really is which is very relaxing and vulnerable and normal, which is what Christians really need to be a little bit more of, right? And part of what you can do if you, want, if you have this gospel all on your head is to go think about world one. So you seem to care a lot about justice. What draws you there? What drives you there? What, where do you, where's this hope and expectation that something should be better? Where does that come from for you? Most people don't really know, but what I'd say is I think embedded in the human heart because there is a God is his intention that the world not be like this. I think, in fact, when God looks at this world, what he keeps saying is this is not what I intended. I didn't mean for families to be this broken. I didn't mean for the world to be this destructive. I didn't mean for people to hurt this well. I had an intention of a better world. And I think our shared longing for justice, for hope, for healing comes out of a sense that we were not made for this. We were made for something better. For a lot of 
nutrition. Oh, I'd never thought of it that way before. Right? You're beginning to frame their life in a slightly bigger story than they've ever anticipated. But can, I, can I share with you um, how I think God wants to solve this problem? Meet our longest... I think, right, yes, you're all of a sudden in world three. I think the only solution was for God to intervene, and he could either intervene by restarting everything all over, or he could come in person and begin to fix it. And what I love is that he doesn't do it from a distance. He actually entered our world. Person by person, he begins to touch them. Come loving word by loving word, confrontation with evil after confrontation with evil, he actually enters it and experiences it and models for us what it would look like. And because he dies in our place and on our behalf, he actually gives us the power to change. Do you want to do something about the evil that you see? Right? You're beginning to move into um, the fourth world on the bottom left-hand corner. Part of the invitation that God gives you is join with him. Let's remake this world into what God intended it to be. Let's contribute to what he's already doing. Let's participate with him. And here's the deal. I don't think you can do it by yourself. I don't think you can do it alone. I don't think we have, we're loving enough, kind enough, or powerful enough to do it. But imagine if God were doing it with you and through you. What could be accomplished? Right? Wherever you find yourself in a story, you, can, you have these four pictures in your head. You can kind of quiet, gently lead people through. One of the practical ways that we do this in InterVarsity, just to give you a, a practical example, um, is we've been developing these visual um, evangelistic tools that we use on campus. I'm not expecting you to carry one around, but it, I'll describe one to give you the idea. Um, we call them proxy stations, um, and they're artistic and engaging. So one of them is um, a black panel about my height this wide, and on it um, are various uh, destructive experiences we have in the world, right? So um, sexual assault, um, theft, uh, libel, slander, right, all these kind of things. And there's a second panel that looks exactly like it right next to it. And what we do is we invite people, students, hey, would you be willing to uh, participate in this thing that we're doing? And so we give them, you know those little red stickers that you, you get at office supply stores? I don't know what people actually use them for at offices, but you can find them. We say, you know, would you put a red sticker on um, any of these crimes that have commi been committed against you uh, or somebody in your family or neighborhood? Right? So people will be like, uh, I know somebody who's been sexually assaulted. I know somebody who's, been, who's experienced a theft. I know somebody who's been um, you know, uh, racially profiled, blah, 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 blah. And then you go to the next panel and we ask, so um, could you describe... Um, which of these exact same things you've um, been guilty of uh, um, doing? So we, we ratchet up a little. And usually they're like, what? And like, you know, like murder, theft, sexual assault. Which one of these are you guilty of? And then what we instruct the Christian students to do is, here, let me start. And they begin to put a dot on each one of them. Right? And they just go, um, and they're like, what? You've committed murder? Well, no, but um, I'm a follower of Jesus. And he says, if I've hated somebody, I've killed them effectively in my heart, so I think I'm guilty of this, right? I would say I'm guilty of sexual assault because every time um, I've used somebody else's image to satisfy my own lusts, right? Whether it's their physical image or the romantic comedy image of them, right? The emotional porn that um, is romantic comedies. Um, I I've done that. How about you? And then the last panel is, is an open board that says, what's the solution? And so we invite them to write on little notepads, little sticky pads. What's the solution to this problem? Right? We've, done, we've been victims of evil, and we've done evil together. And usually, after the Christian does that, the non-Christian is more likely to go, yeah, well, I guess I, you know, I'm guilty of some of these. If we're both complicit and actors in this, if we've actually done violence to people, what's the solution? And usually, they'll say something like, well, more education. Really, so what kind of class do you think would change the way we behave? 
but stronger laws. Right here in the United States, we already incarcerate two million people. How many more of us would fit in the prison system? What, what you know? And, but and not in a condescending, sneering way, but in an honest engagement. Like how how would how would you what law what law could you propose that would change the way we act? And then you're able to go. Well, could I share with you um, how I think you, this might change? You have to change what it means to be human. Right? You have to change the human heart so that we no longer desire to do the bad things. But it's all based on this thing, right? Let's start with our shared experience of brokenness and sin. And what I like about it is you don't have to convince somebody they're bad, which has always been my, the difficult part for me of the bridge diagram, which is an excellent diagram. Still know thousands of people come to faith through it all the time. The difficult thing with the bridge diagram for me was always trying to convince people they were really distant from God and that they were bad. It just felt like, uh, like hard going. You know you're really unhappy right now, right? No, not really. Do you feel really distant from God? You must feel really distant from God. No, I'm not even sure you believe it. Right? I mean, you're like, ah. But an experience of a broken world, everybody can come in. Uh, one of our national evangelists with InterVarsity has said, it used to be um, humanity's uh, sin, kind of uh, universal sin was the hardest thing to talk about in evangelism, and now it's humanity's goodness. Nobody really believes we're good. And human sin is easy to talk about. So then you invite them. Would you consider becoming a follower of Jesus so you can participate in his mission to restore to the world to the way that you and I both know he intended it to be? So that's one gospel presentation, the big story. I realize I went through that quickly. There's an entire booklet that lists everything I said, as well as Bible references, uh, because there, you should be able to talk about scripture in it. Um, and for those of you who are a little bit more technologically savvy, um, there's actually what we call the Big Story app, both on iPhone and Android. <laughs> and what you can actually do is you can draw on it. I mean, the pictures are already there, so you don't have to remember all the pictures, but you can emphasize like the scribbly lines or the cross, and then freeze it, and then flip the thing, and it walks you through the entire presentation. And at the end, there's a prayer uh, that if you want, they can pray, or you can text it, uh, email it to them, and they can think about the prayer. And after they do that, I think there's a link that sends them to follow-up material. Um, so that uh, there's a little follow-up. So if you go to the iTunes store or the Android store and look for the big story, you could actually have a gospel presentation on your phone uh, to be helpful to you. I, let me end with this. Um, I, I do think in the end, um, gospel presentations are like intellectually interesting. They only come to life when you start using them and sharing them. And I want to say to those of us who are already followers of Jesus, um, one, uh, few things remind me of how much I'm grateful for what Jesus has accomplished than when I'm forced to re rehearse the story of what Jesus is doing in the world. It, it's incredibly good for my own spiritual health to have to say it out loud to someone else and go, this is so true. My daughter was asking, why are people holding their hands up when they're singing? And I said, it's because right when I tell you, did you do something wrong? And she goes, no, I didn't do it, right? You're testifying to it. I said, there's something really good about testifying. Right? And I think if you're given the privilege of watching somebody else come to faith, you're watching the most, most earth-shattering, world-changing miracle that's ever been next to the resurrection of Jesus himself. But somebody has moved from death to life. And if you're like, I just long to see more of God's power, I long to see more of God's work around me, then my friends, invest in evangelism because literally you will see him ex um, execute miracle after miracle around you. Um, Thanks for the opportunity. Let me pray for us, then we'll hand it back over to the worship team. And we'll have the brochures out in the back, or the tools in the back. Um, Lord, thank you for the privilege 
of responding to your invitation to belong to you, to identify with you, to be involved in the things that you're involved with. Um, and thank you for the privilege then of um, participating in your redeeming work in the world. Um, Lord, I long for my friends here at CBC to experience um, miracle after miracle of new lives being transformed from death to life, from pe watching people move from darkness to the light. Would you give each of them, I pray, an opportunity to share their faith uh, with this or any other tool, and then have the uh, shattering privilege of watching somebody become a follower of yours. Would you do it, Lord, not just so that you would receive the honor and glory that you do, so that our lives, um, our faith would become alive for us again, and we could watch your work up close and know the joy of uh, doing it with you. To you be the honor and glory, we pray.